sermon text reading is from Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13, and Isaiah 58, verses 1 through 12. Matthew 6. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Isaiah 58. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer, And you shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness, and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually, and satisfy your desire in scorched places, and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruin shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. Last several weeks, we've been in our winter teaching series called Teach Us to Pray, looking at the Lord's Prayer. You will notice, by the way, that I'm not using the Luke passage this morning, but the Matthew one. It's given twice. And the wording there is slightly different. I thought it would be appropriate for this part of the Lord's Prayer. If you were here last week, we started with our Father. And we said that our Father really was the beginning point to understand the rest of the prayer. And you'll see that play itself out today. The focus on relationship and connecting well is part of this vision that God gives us. And I thought about Jim's prayer earlier when he prayers the people. And I thought that really did capture well our sense right now in our world, not just locally and nationally, but our world, uh, the military threat in the Ukraine. We think about, of course, the last two years of disease and pestilence, and we think about just the strife in our nation and globally, of course, and certainly things local in our city. It, very easily, we can connect the sense of like, Lord, your kingdom come. Uh, we can see, well, there's so many places where we'd like to see that happen. But one of the things that's also part of this is your will be done. And it's a connection to us. And so it's not just about the world out there, it's about the world in here as well. And what the Lord wants for us, and this is really where I'm going this morning, is there to be an alignment, not just between heaven and earth, between God's heart and your heart. A perfect alignment. And that's what this part of the prayer is ultimately about. And so this morning, I want you to to see this, that if we can align ourselves, we're going to experience peace in a way that we were ultimately designed for, which brings delight, joy, pleasure. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at this through the prism of three things. First, we're going to look at the presence of our kingdom, because there's an alternate version, an alternate narrative. 
in this contested space that we live in. But then secondly, the character of his kingdom. What does it mean to want his kingdom in the world? And then finally, as I've been doing every week, I'm the coach, Coach Armstrong. We're going to look practically. How do we actually do this? How do we pray it? At the very end, you'll see how practical that can be. So let's jump with the first thing here, and that's the presence of our kingdom. And as I do so, I could have chosen, of course, many different passages. There are other passages probably you were thinking of. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. But the reason why I chose the Isaiah 58 passage is the first half of that passage, the prophet gives us a great picture of the alternate kingdom here. And to understand that, you've got to go all the way back to the book of Genesis. In Genesis, Abraham is blessed by God. And Abraham is saying, is told, I will be your God and you will be my people. And out of you will come a great nation. And by Genesis chapter 17, after hearing this multiple times, Abraham is told, Abraham, through you a great and mighty people. And not only will you be blessed, but you will bless the nations through your work here on earth. That's the original vision. That's the original mission. But by the time we get to 8th century B.C., Israel is in tatters of itself. It has failed that mission big time. And this is when the prophet enters the picture. And so let's look again at verses 2 and 3. I want you to hear this, this, this gap, really, that's going on between their outward life and their inward life. Yet they seek me daily. This is Isaiah speaking. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, here's the answer. In the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. You seek your own pleasure. One of the things that's true about the Christian life is if we go after, directly after pleasure in and of itself, we'll never get there. But if we go after God, we get His pleasure in our own. We get that alignment, as we're going to see as we move through this text here. And what clearly has happened here is that, that the leadership of Israel, their religious leadership in particular, okay, has focused on themselves and not being a blessing to those that they serve or that serve them, as well as a blessing to the nations. Again, that failure put on display here. And that word oppression, you see that word there. What does oppression mean? Well, oppression means the absence of justice. In a nutshell, oppression, we certainly think of oppression, you think of perhaps, uh, you know, chattel slavery, the story there. You think of, 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 of whole people groups and nations that have been literally enslaved in that sense. But oppression is so much more than that. Oppression is anything where there's an absence of justice in the land. And so these people who were so fastidiously religious that they are fasting on a regular basis. I mean, think about all the spiritual disciplines out there, right? Prayer, of course, the other sacraments and uh, so forth. But fasting, I would suggest to you, is the most difficult one to do on a rhythmic basis. Taking away basics like food. I mean, that's what we're talking about in the spiritual discipline. And they are doing it, well, religiously. They're good at it. And it says here that it's not like they're outwardly being miscreants. They are, they are outwardly saying, we want you, God. We want to delight in you. Did you hear that? Isaiah is saying, God sees that. Your outward manifestation of religious life. But it means nothing to him. He can't hear your voice, he says. Here's what's fascinating. I will be your God. You will be my people. Blessing to the nations. You know what that actually is? A theocracy. Now, some of you hear that word theocracy. You're thinking of modern day Iran or a place like that. And you're saying, I'm headed to the exits here if that's what we're in for. But the problem is you've never seen a good theocracy. You see, Israel was actually designed to be a theocracy. And by the way, when you pray, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, you're praying for theocracy. You're praying for his governance. You're praying for his life, his kingdom to be experienced on earth as it is in heaven. 
That's a theocracy. The problem is we've never seen one worth living in. But oh my gosh, if we had what God wants for us, his governance in our life and in our world globally and nationally and locally, imagine what the world would be like, he says. And so there's this, this gap between what we're designed for and what actually is. I'm reminded of a passage in Matthew chapter 25 where Jesus is telling the parable. He's telling this parable about the sheep and the goats because he's talking about judgment, the final judgment. And what he says there is fascinating. He says to what he calls the sheep, he says, come in, come in for eternity with me. He says, for I was hungry and you fed me. and I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink and I was naked and you clothed me. And it says the sheep will respond and say, Jesus, when did we clothe you? When did we feed you? When did we give you a drink? And he says, when you did it to the least of these, you did it for me. And it says that the, the goats uh, say, well, we've done everything. We've done all that. We've, we've done it all over eyes, crossed all our teeth. We were there every Sunday in, in worship. He says, depart from me. I never knew you. And they say, how can that be? Why is that? He says, because when I was hungry, you did not feed me. When I was thirsty, you did not give me something to drink. When I was naked, you did not clothe me. What is Jesus saying? He is saying that if there's no evidence of your faith, you should not believe that you have faith. Martin Luther put it this way. We're saved by faith alone, but by a faith that is never alone. I love that. We're saved by faith alone, but never a faith that is alone. John picks up on this later on. You'll know them by their fruits, not by their confession on a Sunday morning, not by their theology work that they've done in class. No, you will know them by their fruits, you see. This is a hard passage. Amen to that. This is a hard passage. What Isaiah is saying here to us, and essentially this is what is so mind-blowing. What Isaiah, if you really understand, what Isaiah is saying to God's leadership, to God's people, is that you are acting like pagans. Because what pagans do is they, they utter these magical incantations. And what they want is they want certain things from the God or the gods. And so if you have a fertility issue, you, what you do is you go to the goddess of fertility and you, and you make the certain offerings, the votives in, in the temple and so forth. And so that goddess or, or God will then be required to respond quid pro quo and give you exactly, it's a contractual relationship. And, and so... What, what's going on here is they want God's things, but they don't want God. They want continued blessing. They want power. They want possession, but they don't want God's will in their lives because it would require them to give up of themselves in a way they're not prepared to do. And I think there is a hard message here for the church. A week and a half ago, I was along with three other church leaders from this church. We were on an excursion called the Southern Justice Experience. It was sponsored by One Race, a ministry that we've worked with here. Many of you are familiar with them. An amazing organization regarding racial reconciliation. And their motto is, know, own, and change. Know the story, own the story, change the story. And they're incredibly gospel-centered. That's the reason why we partner with them. And, and what they offered for about 100 faith leaders, most of them from Atlanta, uh, was an opportunity to go by bus to Birmingham and to Montgomery. Here in Atlanta, of course, we are in many ways the cradle of the civil rights movement. But, but Birmingham and Montgomery are, are some of the most critical places and junctures in the civil rights story. And so our first stop was the 16th Street Baptist Church, where we're... Uh, faithfully, in September of 1963, 15 to 20 sticks of dynamite were laid at the base of that church on a Sunday morning by four Klansmen. And they blew a gaping hole in the side of that church, and four little girls in a girls' restroom on the other side of that wall were instantly killed. The Klansmen weren't trying to just be terrorists and put fear in the hearts. They were trying to kill because they did that on a Sunday morning. And what is remarkable to think about is if you know anything about the Klan, they, they, they clothe themselves, at least in the language of Christianity. And some of those very people who had laid the dynamite at the base of that church were somewhere else at another church Sunday morning worshiping. Now that's extreme. 
Mind you that even in 1963, Birmingham, the most segregated city in America, according to Dr. King, even the Klansmen in 1963 were considered pretty fringe. But the reality is the leadership of Birmingham was very racist through and through. And Dr. King, earlier that year, found himself in Birmingham leading a resistance over issues regarding voting rights and segregation and so forth, and, and he was thrown into jail. And very famously, he wrote a letter. They are called Letter from a Birmingham Jail. And what he did there was he wasn't taking on the Klansmen. No, they didn't have ears to hear. He was taking on the white leadership of Birmingham, including the churches of Birmingham, as well as some synagogues, some rabbis as well. They called themselves moderates. And what they asked for Dr. King was to slow things down. It was to wait longer. And if you've read that that letter, which, by the way, if you have it, let me encourage you to do so. It is one of the most profound pieces of writing Western civilization in the last several centuries, in my opinion. It is profound in its prophetic voice. And every single time I read it, I hear something new. But what he says there to the white moderates of Birmingham and the South is he says, you have no idea. You have no idea how long we have waited Now, I want you to listen to this. I could have pulled several things, but let me just give you this one section. Listen to what Dr. King says. I've heard numerous religious leaders of the South call upon their worshipers to comply with a desegregation decision because it is the law. But I've longed to hear white ministers declare, follow this decree because integration is morally right and the Negro is your brother. In the midst of blatant injustices inflicted upon the Negro, I've watched white churchmen stand on the sideline and merely mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities. In the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I've heard so many ministers say, those are social issues with which the gospel has no real concern. And I've watched so many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion, which made a strange distinction between body and soul, the sacred and the secular. Let me tell you why I'm giving you that portion of the letter. I think it represents a temptation in our church 60, 70 years after he wrote this. And that is to create a distinction between what's in here and what's out there. Between the sacred and the secular. Did you hear what Dr. King says? If we truly believe the gospel, if we truly believe the good news of Jesus Christ, It simply can't be spiritual in nature because God didn't come just to create spiritual beings, but to create a new heavens, a new earth. Amen. And so what Dr. King prophetically was addressing was this massive gap between what we say we believe on a Sunday morning and how we practice our lives on a Monday morning. And and so... It may not be for you personally this morning an issue regarding race. It may be, but it may not be. But, but there for all of us is a gap that Dr. King is addressing that I want to point out here. What does it mean to address that gap? At the close of this first point, let me just say this. Let me, let me ask you, when you say, when you pray, your kingdom come, your will be on earth. And Caroline brought this out well when she was talking about take my life, how scary that is. You're asking for a perfect alignment in your heart, which means, in some cases, a lot of pain. And, and so I, I want to ask you, are you the captain of your destiny this morning? Or is he the Lord of your life? Are you interested in his project for the world? Or are you more interested in project self this morning? Those are hard words. But they're not my words. They're Isaiah's words and ultimately the Lord's words for us this morning. But look, I know that first point was heavy got good news for you. It gets better, okay? So second point. The second half, verses 6 through 12, is a vision of blessing. It's a vision of what happens when we live out our faith. And so I want you now to live into that on the other side of, of those prophetic words. Listen to, to what he says there. And what I want you to see is the character of his kingdom. And one of the things I want to do is I want to go back to a phrase uh, that in Matthew 6.10 that's used right before we get to your kingdom come, your will be done. And it's where right after our Father, he says, hallowed be your name. Now, what does that mean? It means holy be your name. That the name of God is holy. It's without sin, but it means so much more. Let me point out two things, because I think you'll see that in these two things, it sets us up to understand what does it actually mean to pray your kingdom come now, okay? The blessing part here. 
Here it is, the first part. Holiness means the goodness of God. Holiness means the goodness of God. If you turn a light bulb on, what happens to the light? It radiates, doesn't it? It, it goes out. It's inherent. It's intrinsic to the properties of light. Going out at, was it 186,000 miles per second? It's pretty fast, right? And so as it goes out, right, it radiates. And it's interesting. We sometimes will use the language of human beings in the same way. We'll say, oh, that man, that woman, they radiate joy, right? And what that means is, is that they are like they, they can't help themselves, that to be who they are is to commit themselves to reflect their inner parts outward into the world. Well, that's the holiness of God in a nutshell. It is the goodness of God, and God can't keep it to himself by his very nature. Because he's perfectly good, his goodness has to go out into the world. So that's the first property of holiness, as, you might, as we might say. But here's the second thing. Righteousness. Goodness, righteousness equals holiness. The word in Hebrew for righteousness is sedek, and that literally means to be just. And so whenever you see the righteous one or righteousness, you need to insert the word just or justice there. That's exactly what it's referring to. That's what righteousness actually means. That's why self-righteousness is such a problem, because it's self-justification. You see how that works? And so it is justice in the world. And just like light radiates, when it's just, it pierces the darkness. Right? That darkness doesn't have a choice in the matter. Right? Why does darkness uh, exist only where light doesn't exist? Right? By, by, we, we say light and darkness pit themselves against each other in some philosophies. That's actually not true. Darkness is only there because light isn't. And as soon as, soon as light shows up on the scene, victory. It, it, it has to flee. And so this picture of righteousness given to us here by Isaiah is one saying that when the nations, when God's people live out righteous justice in the land, darkness has to flee. The victory's already been won. That's, that's this picture here. And so I want you to see what God wants because that's in verses 6 and 7 in particular. Look at verse 6. Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Lord, we're doing this fast here in the synagogue, here in the temple, day in and day out. And, and the Lord just says, that's not the fast I'm looking for. The fast I'm looking for is for you to take a break from oppression. To stop feasting on oppression. I want you to fast from oppression. Can you take a break from that, please? This is the fast that I'm looking for. Because what happens is, oppression exists just like darkness exists where the light doesn't exist. Oppression automatically exists where righteousness doesn't exist. And so I want you to be the righteous ones. I want you to live out my holiness, my goodness, and my justice in the land. And so in doing so, you create freedom for people. I've said it last week, I'll say it again. That because we've been designed by God, when we live according to our design, in other words, when we're aligned with Him, we can't help but experience joy, freedom. Because that's how we've been designed. And what, what Isaiah is saying is, uh, I want you to lead other people to live according to my design so they can experience freedom. And this yoke, this picture of a, of a beast of burden with a yoke on their neck like an oxen, they can't move. They're completely under control. They're powerless. He says, no, I want to liberate you. I want to free you to experience my delight, my pleasure, my joy. And then he says in verse 7, something about provision. He says, is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house and when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? He's saying, look, you have been blessed. You've been given provision. You've been given abundance. What's the purpose? Not simply to feed yourselves, though. Take care of your family and so forth. There's a home involved here, certainly. He says, but then to bless the nations. You know, I look around this room and I see a number of you who are involved in this very work. And I want to say, well done. Part of the blessing here, you know, we're, we're in the midst of training a diaconate right now. And I was teaching them a, a theology class this past Sunday, about 10 that were on the, the Zoom call. And, and I just thought, my gosh, like how beautiful it is that God has prepared. We've all been called to works of mercy and compassion. But, but some people have been especially called, in, almost in a sense of focus of a calling in their life. And that's who our deacons are. 
And I look around the room and I see a number of you who already are and, and others who are training and many of you involved with different missions and ministries involved in our neighborhoods, through our neighbor community groups. Some of you are even on staff at some of our... And I, I say, this is a church... Now, I, I don't want to just paint the, the hard picture here about the gap. We all have a gap, yes, but I look around the room and I see blessing. I see how the city of Atlanta is a more beautiful place on account of you here. And what I'm, what I'm saying, what I'm, I'm setting up here is this picture of the Hebrew word for, for this idea, and it's called shalom. It's to be the shalom to the city. Now, the word there means peace, certainly, but it means a lot more than simply peace. I want to read to you a quote from a professor that I know, I took some classes from him in the last several summers. His name is Neil Planaga and at Calvin Seminary. He listened to what he said at one point about what is shalom. The webbing together of God, humans and all creation and equity, fulfillment and delight, what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. We translate it peace, but it means a lot more than that. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts are fruitfully employed all under the ark of God's love. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. It's when you look out in the world and you say, man, I wish it was different. I want to be part of that change in our city. I want to be part of that change nationally and globally even. It's, there's a longing in your heart, all of us, for shalom. And God longs for that for you. He longs that for for the world here. And I love that word webbing there at the very beginning there. It's like this. If you were to take a, you know, a thousand pieces of yarn and lay them up on a table, and then you're trying to pick something up with a thousand pieces of yarn just kind of laying on top of each other, you're not going to get very far, are you? But if you, you interconnect, you weave together that yarn, man, it's super strong, isn't it? You can, you wear that clothing and it holds and you, you, uh, you, you can hold things, heavy things, in, in a really well-woven fabric. I'm reminded of a man named David Brooks. He's a columnist for the New York Times. And uh, I understand now that he's a believer. But several years ago, he started a project called Weave. You can go to Google David Brooks Weave. You'll come up with a website. And he talks there about the social fabric of our country. One of the things he notes there is that we live in a hyper-individualized society today. Look out for number one. Let's take care of each other, uh, take care of ourselves, not each other. And so what he says there in Weave is that we need to inspire our nation to consider others, to love our neighbors as ourselves, as he says there. And I, I think that's exactly the, the vision here that God has. It says that we would create a social fabric in our city, that we would create a social fabric in our land and in our world so that shalom would be experienced by more people. And here's the thing. When you are deeply connected to each other, relationally, economically, socially, psychologically, and spiritually, what happens is that when you have needs, the community knows what those needs are. And so that's this idea of flourishing and wholeness, of being able to take care of each other. So I know, because you're not an isolated individual, I know right now you're hurting. Let, let me provide for you. And again, I look around our congregation after 14 years of pastoring this church, and I delight to be able to say, well done. Yes, there's a gap, yes, but well done at the same time. That we would build a greater social fabric, as it were. When I was growing up, uh, my, mo my mother was an a amateur architect. Now, Sunday mornings, by the way, were in, in our family room. I could hear her scribbling on architecture paper. And then finally by an eraser, erasing everything. I mean, this is constant. Some of the architects in the room know exactly what I'm talking about. And then some Sunday afternoons when she wasn't doing that, uh, my parents would drag me and my sister kicking and screaming to the local new swim and tennis clubs that were being developed in the 1980s around North Atlanta in the suburbs where I grew up. And, and there were all these showrooms. And so we would end up in these showrooms. By the way, she was a pretty good architect. She actually designed one of her homes, uh, but we never moved in uh, because she actually drove by there one day, looked at it, and she said, I don't like it. And so she saw, had someone else buy it. That's a true story, by the way. But we would go to these showrooms, and while in the showroom, you know, you'd have the, the, the representative from the real estate company, the, the designer, whatever, offer coffee, refreshments. There'd be some warmth, some hospitality there. And what they want you to see is that this model home is what the rest of the community will look like, right? And so my mom would, would go in there for ideas, right, some design principles and 
and that sort of thing. And I thought, man, that is a picture of what the kingdom of God is supposed to be, that we're supposed to be model homes, that we're supposed to be that model home. And when that community is being found, that's what the church is supposed to be in a community. That's why we came to Atlanta. I was asked about this yesterday, like, why Atlanta? Why did you come here for? Because there are just very few Christians in the city, and, and we, we long to be part of the social fabric of the city, to see a more beautiful city, a more beautiful nation, because Atlanta influences everything. Hear an amen from Dan DeCruzzi on that one there. Um, this is what we want. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> we, this is what we want. To be these showrooms, these embassies, to be ambassadors, reflecting new culture into our city. But I, let me stop here and say this. If, that's, if what you hear in all that is, man, I, I, need to, I need to be more involved Monday through Saturday. I need to uh, maybe increase my tithing or giving to ministries that are doing this work. If that's what you hear, I may have misled you. Because it is very tempting at this point, and believe me, I've heard this before, where you, feel, you walk out of here feeling guilty. Maybe. I've tried to kind of take away some of that by, by saying, no, no, I'm seeing a lot of blessing in this room. But the reality is, it's very tempting to look at this and say, oh, I need to do more. You know, that's what alignment means. Let me tell you, before that, don't put the cart before the horse. You need to be aligned with Jesus himself. Why do I say that? In Matthew chapter 22, there's this great example where Jesus is with a religious leader. Now, it says lawyer, but it's a religious leader. And they're trying to entrap Jesus as they were often trying to do. And what they try to do there is they try to say, Jesus, what's, what's the greatest commandment? Because if, he, if Jesus chooses one of the hundreds of commandments, you know, then, then he's committed uh, really a heresy in Judaism. Like, you can't put one before the other, essentially. But Jesus is a brilliant tactician. I want you to hear his response. It's in verses 37 through 40. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Did you see what Jesus did then? He said, let me just take the hundreds of, and let me just sum it up. Let's make it really easy. There's a vertical and there's a horizontal. Love God, love people. And if you get this one right, you're going to get this one right. And if you're doing this one, it's evidence of this. That's all that he's saying there. That's the whole of the kingdom of God. What does that sound like to you? The prayer. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why do I mention that now regarding Jesus? Because Jesus, his life, from from the beginning of his ministry until he goes to the cross, and he's executed as a common criminal, the whole of his life is shalom. The whole of his life is vertical, horizontal, perfect, lived out. Perfect righteousness here. I'm reminded of of a professor of mine. Um, He said this. uh, He said that Dr. Bruce Walkie, uh, some of you know that name. He's one of the eminent Old Testament professors. He's still alive in his late 80s. And when I was in seminary, I got to take his class on the book of Proverbs. That class, we were his guinea pigs, that class became his commentary. Uh, not what we said, what he said. Like That became his commentary. That is the best commentary on the book of Proverbs that you can get today. And one of the things that he noticed as he was studying, and, and this man knows Hebrew better than you know English, believe me. This man was remarkable in his understanding of what is Hebrew, what is the Old Testament concepts of things like righteousness and justice and so forth. One of the things he noticed in the book of Proverbs is that often when you see the word righteous, you see the word wicked right next to it. And here's what he realized as he did his study on, on what the prophets were saying about righteousness and wickedness. He says, here's how you define righteousness, he said. Righteousness is disadvantaging yourself for the benefit of the community. Wickedness is advantaging yourself at the expense of the community. He says, that's all you need to know. Righteousness, wickedness. What does Jesus do? Jesus is the ultimate form of disadvantaging. For what do we know about Jesus? He had everything perfect relationship, sitting at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And what does he do? He condescends. He condescends to become impoverished, dying the death that we deserved as a common criminal on a cruel instrument of execution, the cross of the Romans. 
What does that say to us? Jesus knows something about truly being disadvantaged in order to teach us something about how we do that ourselves. I'm reminded of a movie called Amistad. If you've never seen it, put it on your short list. It came out many moons ago by Steven Spielberg. It was about the slave ship, the Amistad. And the Amistad was overthrown by the slaves. There was a slave revolt, and they killed the captain. And they didn't really know where they were going. The ship eventually ended up in America. It was headed towards the Caribbean, I believe, but ended up in New England in the early 1800s. And, and the people didn't know what to do with the slaves, and so they, they shackled them again. And they put them in prison to determine their fate. And because they killed the captain of the slave ship, uh, they were guilty of murder, sedition as well. And should we put them to death? And there's this great scene. Again, based on a true story here, the, the story of the Amistad, but there's this great scene where it says that and right before the scene, these abolitionists push these Bibles into the shackled hands of, of these slaves and the next scene, they're inside the prison, and, and one of the slaves has this Bible. And, of course, it's being in English, and being from Africa, they had no idea what these words were, but there were pictures. And one of the other slaves who had actually been participant, a violent participant in the overthrow, much more cynical, he comes over to the first one that's reading it, and he says, put that away. That's just a white man's literature. It means nothing to us. Just put it away. And he says, I don't know. There's something in here, though, that's an interesting he starts pointing to the pictures, and it tells the story of the ministry of Jesus, beginning with the healings, right? showing these pictures, and then eventually getting to the point where he's placed before Pilate, that, that picture, and then the next one's the cross, the three crosses in this picture. And the second slave, who's been cynical, looks at the first one and says, what, what's happening? What's happening? What do you think's going on here? And, and the first one says, I'm not exactly sure. But he looks innocent like us. And I, somehow in his story, I see mine. In the very next scene, this is brilliant artistry, the very next scene are these three mastheads of three ships meant to be the crosses on which they were slaves. Is brilliant artistry. But my point in telling you that is, Jesus isn't someone who simply died for us. He's someone who died with us. He's someone who knows the story. He says, I get you. I understand, right? Your story of darkness, slavery, for it was visited upon me ultimately so that you would experience new life with me. Second Corinthians 8, 9, Paul says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Don't you say, this is the motivation you need to serve him this week. You have been made rich in him, and not just spiritually rich. For many of us in here, it goes beyond simply spiritual wealth. But whatever it is that you have, whatever abundance that you've been given, God asked you to leverage it on his behalf, not as a way to kind of make good with him. No, because you already are good with him, because you have his grace, because Jesus was oppressed, disadvantaged, so that you would be advantaged. And so the call for us is now to live that out here in our city, in the nations, to practice justice righteousness together. So very quickly here at the end, practically, what are we going to do with it? Here's what we're going to do. I want to just note this, that in the last two years, because of COVID, we live in a more hyper-individualized society than ever before. We've experienced isolation like never before. I think this part of the Lord's Prayer is what we need more than anything else right now. The idea that, that we're not made to be alone, but we're made to be other-centered in our experience of the world isolation, the fear that's come with that in the last two years, we need to move beyond that. For there's a kingdom that God wants to bring to this land, to this nation, to these people, to ourselves, right? Through his church. And so here's what I want to ask you to do. I want you to ask him this week in prayer. Four things. I want you to note four things. Here they are real quickly. I'm just going to mention them move on. Number one, I want you to ask to be able to see the gap. Or I want you to acknowledge that you can see this gap between, between how you've been designed and your own practice. Second is to confess that gap. They say, God, I know that it's not just the people out there, it's, it's here in me. That, that I, need, I need healing, which leads to the third thing. I surrender my life to you all over again. Take my life, as we sang earlier. I surrender myself. More of your kingdom in me and through me to the nations. Let me be a conduit of your grace to the people who need it the most right now. And then lastly, ask for kingdom power. Because right now, you don't have what it takes in and of yourself 
to change the world, that Christ and his power that defeated sin and death must live in you and through you to the nations. Now, with that in mind, here's what I'm going to do. I'm about to pray as I always do at the end of my sermon. But here's the coaching. Before you leave today, you get to practice this. And, uh, and I've told Mike this. There's going to be a gap of about a minute between my prayer and before Mike comes up. And if, you'll, if you see the seat back right in front of you, some of you will see an index card. I want you to take that. And if you don't see, it's because I put them all in the seats yesterday and they fell in. They've dived to the middle of your seat back and you can just reach in there. I want you to hold that card. I filled mine out here as well. Do you have a card right here? I want you to get that card. Here's what I want you to do with it. Okay? We're going to practice this together. Okay? I want you to write two things on this card. Here's the first one. I want you to write an outward prayer where you would say, God, more of your kingdom come to the nations or or what's happening in Ukraine, or what's happening in the city of Atlanta, whatever it is, I want you to pray outward with something. More of your kingdom come here, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But here's the second one. The second one I want you to write down is for you, inward. What is it you're saying, God, I need to change. This is surrender. Would you do this in my life? You know, I was working on this card here, and I put in here, um, you know, I think about the, the education gap here in Atlanta. Because of COVID, how many have been left behind? It's a national problem you've been hearing about as well. But Lord, I'm praying, God, like help us close that gap as educators here in the city. But then my second one is, is sometimes I feel like I don't see the poor because of my life. And, and so, Lord, help me to see the poor and the powerless and, and if new with fresh eyes. And here's what I want you to do. Every morning this week or whenever your rhythm is, I want you to pray through this card this week. I want you to do that. And when you go to your office, which for some of you is you exit out your bedroom door and go 10 feet down to another room, right? That's your office these days. But, or maybe it's school, whatever it is. I want you to pray through these things rhythmically this week. Why? Because that's how we form habits. And so I want to invite you to do that. And let's see as a church community what God might do. And as I mentioned, we're going to be praying together beginning February 20th here on Sunday evenings. We're going to be praying through the Lord's Prayer. But how cool would it be to now on February 20th for you to begin to pray for these, through these things and see God not just change the world out there, but the world in here. May he do that because he's already given us shalom, his flourishing. And may he, through that shalom, bring more shalom to our city and to our world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that, that we don't, this is not paganism, incantations, in hopes that you will bless us somehow. No, we have already been blessed. We've already received the spring water of verse 11 in Christ. We already have had uh, the repairing of our relationship. The breaching of the walls have been repaired and restored. And now we get that opportunity from verse 12 there. All these blessings, these manifold blessings flowing out. Lord, more of you in our world. Lord, as we pray these prayers this week, Lord, hear a prayer, not because of fasting, but because... Jesus, you abstain on our behalf. And you withheld from yourself. You disadvantaged yourself. And so may we receive your fast first. And may we fast from oppression. May we fast from injustice. May we embrace Sadek, righteousness and justice in our land, beginning in our lives this week. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Redeemer, Savior, the one who is victorious over sin and death. Amen.
now as his church, let's pray this prayer of confession together as one body. Father, we are often fixated upon ourselves. We don't see our neighbor's need, the true plight of the world, and your call to step into the breach to repair the broken walls. Forgive us for ignoring your call to be righteous citizens who pursue justice wherever injustice is found. Jesus, you traded the riches of heaven for poverty that we might have eternal riches. Help us leverage those riches on behalf of others so that more people will experience God's peace today. Teach us to align our prayers with your will so that we might see more of your kingdom in our lives. Amen. Scripture tells us if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Receive his forgiveness this morning and walk in his righteousness. And now we go to his table. And the table is all about righteousness. Right? It's the table Jesus instituted this meal. He left this on the night he was to be betrayed. Remember, he said, do this in remembrance of me, to remember me. And so here at the table, we do, by faith, look back. We remember him dying in our place. And the table... As theologians say, it is a sign and a seal of his promises. And it's a place for us to come and participate because we have eyes through faith to see the day he comes back, where the kingdom comes in fullness. And at the table, he promises that here to lift us up, to make us more like him, to raise us and give us more of his righteousness. That's what the table's about. It's exactly what was prayed today. It's where we we get the fulfillment of his promise. And that's why we do it weekly here at City Church. With those helping with communion, please come forward. And as they do, I want to I just tell you, if you're here this morning and you're, you're not yet a follower of Jesus, it'd be inauthentic for you to come have communion with a God that's not yet your God. Instead, we want you to know this is a safe place to investigate that. We even have prayers in the back of the bulletin where you can look to maybe find some words of, of hopefully things that are stirring in you. And if you'd like to talk more about that, please, we, we'd be open to that. But if this morning you've believed on him and you're trusting him, come hungry. Come asking him to fill you up, to lift you up, to be like him. And on the night that Jesus was to be betrayed after giving thanks, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And in the same way, he took the cup and raised it in front of his disciples and said, this is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink of it as often as you come together. And we join with the saints who throughout the ages proclaim this great mystery, which goes like this. Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. The non-alcoholic wine will be on the right side if that's needed. We only have one of those this morning. Come when you're ready. Thank you. in there. 
take those ordinary means and and make them extraordinary, Lord. Multiply them in our hearts and lives. Lord, we need more and more of your righteousness here, more and more of your kingdom come on this earth to displace the darkness, Lord. Would you come, O light of the world? Jesus, now as we turn to bring your tithes and offerings, meet us here and continue as we continue in worship. In your name, amen. Now we're going to continue worship through giving him his tithe and our offering. And there's a card in the seat back that if you give online, it's just a, it's a way of remembering that here we bring our first fruits to him and for his blessing on that. So you can take that and worship through that and put it in the offering plate as well if that'd be something you'd like to do. I'll sing, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Great is Thy Faithfulness. Sing this. 